I'm Rob. And I'm Paul. And yes, Paul Schoons has joined us again, Doctor Who non-fiction author, joining us today from inside his store, Retro Space Sci-Fi Collectibles in downtown Takapuna, New Zealand. And I hope I haven't butchered the suburb's name, Paul. Takapuna, that's exactly right, Rob. Oh, good, good. I, I, I'm pretty good with Aboriginal words here in Australia, but some of the Maori words in New Zealand, I, you know, I can't say them properly. Look, even some New Zealanders struggle. <laughs> <laughs> now... We're here today to talk about The Lie of the Land, but before we get to that, I really want to take a brief moment to comment on the previous episode, Pyramid at the End of the World, because after I cooled down a bit and listened to some more opinions on other podcasts and read some websites, and I know we chatted about it too, Paul, on, on Facebook Messenger, yeah. I started to think, oh, had I gone a little high with my score, and as I've sort of hinted on Twitter during the week, I'm, I'm going to revise my score here and now. I gave it eight and a half last week. I'm taking it down to a seven and a half, maybe even a seven. And I think at the end of this series, I'm going to rejig all my scores so they make sense in relation to one another. So I thought I might throw it over to you for your brief thoughts on that as well, because now we had this great conversation about yeah. it, and there's a little bit more to say. I know for our listeners who want to get into Lie of the Land, we will get to it, but just briefly on Pyramid at the End of the World. Yeah, it's funny you should say that about scores, Rob, because I, I started out on my notes with six last week, and because of your positivity, I revised it up to a seven by the end of the end of the show. So, oh, my. I, <laughs> I don't know. I may, I maybe I'll stick with my seven. It's closer to your score. But it, like I say, I was I was hinging between those two scores. We did talk, like you say, about some stuff on, on Facebook afterwards, which was some notes I had, but we didn't, we didn't really get around to discussing. So if I can be very quick and just go through the things we talked about very, very briefly. Yes, please. The first thing I mentioned is how does Bill know so much about the simulation? Because at the end of Streamer, she only has a really brief phone call from the doctor, and then she's straight out on her first date with Penny, and she's talking all about what happened. How does she know all this? She, how could she possibly know this? Because she wasn't in the simulation, only the doctor was. Mm. Why does Penny, Bill say all this to Penny on a first date? Is she trying to scare her away? It's not a <laughs> pothole as such, but it's slightly odd behavior from Bill. I mean, if you're out on a first date, would you really say these sort of things? It was weird. It's also very hard to buy into Penny's casual amusement at this totally outlandish story from someone she barely knows. Yeah. And then there's the soldiers who burst into Bill's home. Why are they aiming weapons and shouting at Bill and Penny, considering they've only just come to collect Bill to get her help? I mean, come on. This is not the right way to, to actually ask for someone's help. Um, so that feels wrong. As I said to you, Rob, what would be the first thing you'd do if you noticed the time was wrong on your phone or watch? You'd correct it to the right time, wouldn't you? Or yeah. is that just... You certainly would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. None of them do. They all just keep staring at their phones as the time keeps ticking down. Why does Erica wedge her bag in the front door? I, I wondered if she might be worried about the door locking on her, but then straight away her pet partner or flatmate or whoever he is is still inside and he pops out. So I'm not sure why they'd be concerned for her. So that just seems a bit staged. The tracking down of the biological lab experiment seems like a leap of intuition rather than following a trail of clues. They suddenly just hint on, seize on this idea it's a biological trials. The note I had was the deduction does not feel earned. I don't know how you feel about that, Rob. Similar. Yeah, I've yeah. thought about that a bit too, and yeah, similar. Yeah. And the other, last thing I just wanted to mention, because I was motoring for this really quickly, I joked about the monks and Cybermen, if you remember Rob, having the same choreographer. And it turns out afterwards they did. Uh, yes. Lisa Burke, yeah. <laughs> she is the same choreographer both. So well spotted to you, Rob, because you were the one who mentioned that it seemed like a very similar choreographer. Well, thank you very much. All righty. So let's move on to this week's episode, The Lie of the Land. We kick off with our word of the week, and my word of the week is partition. Oh, that's intriguing. Thank you. My word is button. Button. 
equally intriguing. And I have a third word of the week too, because David's written us a letter from the US. Uh, we can't keep a good man down. And he says his word of the week is duality. Ooh. And we'll get to that in his letter later on in the show. Alrighty, so let's discuss the lie of the land. Gosh, where shall we start? There is so much to get through. Characters, plot, the monks. Where shall we start, Paul? Pick pick something. We'll start anywhere. How about the meaning of the title? Ooh, okay. Not not something I've made notes on, but please. <laughs> far <laughs> I away. Just, I, I was thinking what does the lie of the land actually mean? And it's one of those it's one of those typical Moffat titles in which it's got uh, the dictionary definition of the lie of the land is the way in which a situation is developing or people behaving, mm-hmm. which is exactly topical for the episode. But of course, it's also the lie of the land in the sense of a falsehood, isn't it? It's the it's the lie as in the not truth of the land. So I thought that was a clever a clever pun. Exactly. Yeah, I, I was reading it, of course, as as the latter because it was a lie what they were living. Uh, but yes, that dual meaning is is kind of nice. I I do like it. Yeah. All right, I'll pick, gosh, I'm going to pick the Doctor. Let's start with the Doctor. Sure. I think the Doctor is getting quite arrogant this series, and I'm not sure I like it. There's been little lines here and there in all the stories, but more recently when he was blind, it was all about, oh, I can beat people even when I'm blind. And here, in Bill's moment of triumph in this episode, he, he had the line, oh, I was just taking those pictures. I didn't know they'd save the world. I've saved the world. And I'm thinking... This is a real sort of arrogance coming through of this doctor, and I'm I'm not sure it's meant to be there for us to dislike or to tut tut about. But I'm just, ugh, I'm not sure I quite like it. Have you noticed it? I have noticed it, Rob. I I, I was had in the back of my mind, especially given, and we'll come to this, the, the contrast with Missy in this episode, that she's obviously working towards some sort of redemption, or so we're meant to believe she is anyway, at the very least. Mm. And, and the doctor seems to be more sliding in the other direction. Are they feeding off each other? Is he becoming less um, good? I don't know if it's quite the right word, but more arrogant as she's becoming more more in, in touch with her her good side. Maybe I don't know. Maybe they're, maybe they're having a, a, an influence on each other. That was just the thought I had while I was watching. I haven't really given it too much consideration beyond that. But it, it, you mentioning that it does make make me think of that point. Well, it's it's certainly happening. Whether it's intentional or not, I guess is the question. Yeah, yeah. Are we are we fans reading too much into it or? <laughs> <laughs> Are we going somewhere with this? Is it a season arc? I don't know. I'm just noticing it more and more. And I guess all of the Doctors have an arrogance. You know, I think probably only my Doctor, Peter Davison, didn't have too much arrogance going on. Most of them have it. So I know it's a Doctor thing, but it's just, I don't know. It's it's just really stood out to me just recently. He kind of, you almost feel like he's on the verge of being a bit power mad too, because he talks about... Um, how he how he can change other things as well, like racism. And I love this line about people who talk in cinemas because that's one of my pet, pet, pet hates as well. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like he's almost like he's toying with the idea of having lots of power, even if he doesn't actually act on it. But to, to even express that just feels like, like you say, it's that arrogance. And also he's a bit... He's a bit super confident, isn't he, when he talks about wanting Bill back by his side because it's the safest place in the world. <laughs> On past form, it really isn't. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. I guess we can't jump off the Doctor without talking about the regeneration in this episode. <laughs> and, oh, gosh, where do we start with that? <laughs> well, I've been calling that misdirection from the moment it first popped up in a trailer. And, you know, so I guess in that sense, I didn't feel too hard done by because it, it happened. It was a gag almost. And I moved on with it. But someone who's really been sucked in by this, I think, might really throw their toys out of the pram if they were thinking that was really going to be something. And it wasn't. Ten, ten and, it was tenants all over again, do you think? 
Yeah, yeah. And I just get the feeling there are some people out there who'd really invested a lot in, in that, like, oh, it's beginning here and it will continue on and then he does it at Christmas or something, you know, yeah. or, or something. And I just think a lot of people will be quite annoyed at that. Whereas for me, it was like, oh, yeah, that's what I thought it would be. Move on. I mean, obviously, it's it's in the trailer, right? That's that's where people started talking about it. Yeah. They see it in the trailer. And as people, like, dissected that bit that we get from the trailer, they recognized from looking at other photos and footage that it was this episode or it was one of the monk episodes mm. there was something that, that i think there's a monk statue on the desk behind him if i remember rightly that they that, that they were able to pick out of the trailer yes. because it was fairly early on people had that 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 belief that it was going to be one of the monk episodes that he was going to regenerate in. so armed with that expectation there was the follow-on of okay, we know there are later episodes in the in the series and we know that Capaldi is in it to the end of the series because we've seen scenes from later episodes. We know that he somehow regenerates, he, he either doesn't regenerate, as you say, or he regenerates into himself a la David Tennant. So I, I think that the regeneration fake-out was, was accepted by fans. It was probably the casual viewers who probably looked at the, the trailer and didn't, didn't bother to analyse it and went, oh, okay, that's his regeneration. Plus which, I mean, if you watch that Graham Norton interview with Capaldi recently where he talks about already having recorded his death scene. Yes, and I wondered what he meant by that. I wonder if he's talking about that scene. Because it's well before he started work on the Christmas special, which is where he's expected to regenerate. If, if Capaldi wants to tease that, and if maybe if he's been requested to tease that particular aspect, he could legitimately say, yes, I recorded a death scene, and, and, and point to that as what he was talking about. He could. My other thought on that, just briefly, has been he would have recorded the two-part, or been in the middle of recording the two-part Cyberman story. Sure. Possibly something happens there. And I've, I've just had this feeling, and I think I've read it, that Moffat wants Christmas to be happy. So I'm wondering if he will get severely damaged at the end of this series and then the Christmas special is somehow backwards in time and we see another adventure where he's not regenerating and then maybe at the <laughs> end we flash forward perhaps to the end of the Cyberman story and we see the regeneration so the regeneration isn't actually part of the Christmas story maybe Rob if we revisit this in six months time and you turn out to be right we can give you a big thumbs up on that <laughs> yeah it's just it's just how I've thought about it I thought well if he has filmed it and it's in the Cyberman story he's still going to come back at Christmas how would I reconcile this that's how I'd do it perhaps yeah. but we'll see a few questions for you here um, regeneration do you think it's just included as a bit of trailer bait yeah I think so I mean does it actually serve a purpose in the story or is it just there for some, a nice clip I think it's a pretty silly idea, actually, that he can just summon up regeneration energy like that. Well, he, he, here's a thought. Who's he doing the regeneration for? He's not hurt, because no. they're blanks. Bill doesn't understand what regeneration is, so she's not going to buy into it. Now Dole and the guards are in on the deception. No one else is watching. So he's just pointlessly showing off. Pretty much, yeah. There's absolutely no reason for it whatsoever. Yeah. Plus, and here's the real puncher, if the Doctor can summon up limited amounts of regeneration of will... Why doesn't he do so in the previous episode to heal his eyes? Yes. <laughs> I mean, come on. That is a sucker punch of a, half of a logic hole, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe they'll explain it away as it was just a, a conjuring trick. It was just lights, smoke and mirrors, yeah. perhaps. It wasn't real regeneration energy. I guess where I'm coming to, Rob, is that when I was watching that scene, I was shaking my head and just going, this just doesn't ring true. Yeah. As much as it should have been a great scene where you kind of punch the air and go, yeah, that's really great. Yeah. Oh, but look, all through New Who and increasingly in the Moffat era, there's been stuff in episodes that I think are there for, for trailers. Uh, anything else broadly on the Doctor before we move on to some other characters? 
Oh, gosh. Um, he's a bit all over the place in this episode, don't you think? Yes. And his hair was too. <laughs> in the final <laughs> scene, it was much shorter than in the rest of the oh, story. Oh, maybe he had a haircut in between before. Oh, that okay. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but go on. You, it sounds like you've got serious points. I've just got silly ones. I, I mean, Capaldi, I usually praise, but I just felt he was a bit overplaying it at points on this, this one. I mean, the, and, the, and, the, and the worst for one for me was the boat ramming scene where he's either the crazed laughter. I just felt, oh, that's just a bit overdone. Well, <laughs> let's talk about that. That was, that was bloody silly. <laughs> you it <know>? was. <laughs> what, what a way to tip off these monks that he's up to something than crashing his huge boat back into the UK. You know, Bill even makes a, a reference that, oh, we could have done this quietly, but instead he did this. And I think it was just so we got that manic scene of him laughing. Yeah. Um, again, maybe they were thinking this will be a good trailer moment. That actually wasn't in a trailer. Um, <laughs> and I just thought, why? Why would you do this? Why would you be tipping them off that you're escaping from where you've been for the past six months by doing this? Especially since he makes such a big point that he's been so careful to keep his plans from the monks for their whole six months. You know, he's kept himself in isolation. He's very sort of um, covertly recruited people. He puts Bill through an overly elaborate test. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like he's really, really trying very hard not to alert the monks what he's up to. And then he turns around and does that straight away. It's kind of like, really? With, in, with in theory, a monk still on the ship. Well, at least one monk, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but again, again, Rob, this is a scene that doesn't need to be in the episode. No, not at all. He could have covertly reached the mainland without doing anything dramatic with the boat. In fact, it would have made more sense if Bill's voiceover had been, we got to, we got to land and we, we jumped on the land yeah. silently and crept along in the darkness, you know, and you just saw them doing that. That would have been really exciting. More and more you're saying, the more I totally agree with you. I think it's, an, it's a trailer moment. Even though it wasn't in a trailer, I think the idea of the Doctor steering a boat at the land and Mount Love and Manatee was probably meant to be a trailer thing. Yeah. Because there's no other reason for it to be there. It just doesn't serve any purpose to the plot. No, it was just bloody weird. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else on Pete before we move on? I think we should move on. All right. Well, we mentioned Missy uh, and her relationship with the Doctor, so let's talk a bit about her. I mean, obviously the first thing to say is finally we can stop talking about who's in the vault. Are you sure? Are you sure? (laughs) Jono? Jono, is that you? Sorry, sorry, folks, if you don't listen to uh, Zeus plug, that's a uh, bit of an in-joke. Um, look, Missy was a strong contender from the start, wasn't she? There was the arrival of Mexican food, and her surname is Gomez. There was the wacky piano playing. There was her rolling around on a piano in the early trailer. <laughs> I, I've got to say that all those fan theories who were looking at that scene of her on the piano top and going, it's Missy in the vault. They were absolutely bang on the money for once, so thumbs up to them. They were. The Doctor's been talking to her directly by name. <laughs> All of these <laughs> things have been happening, and people have still been saying up until last week, oh, no, it won't be Moffat. He'll come up with something. And I've been saying, no, he won't. It's Missy. It is Missy. What's in the vault? <laughs> well, you know, um, the, the TV show that airs after Doctor Who here on, on telly, Whovians, Mm. Uh, which, which is a panel show. I don't know if you've managed to catch any episodes I, I know online of it, or anything like that. Yeah, I know of it. I haven't watched it. Um, they've actually even had a competition, What's in the Vault, as if it was going to be something really amazing. And I'm sure they've had 10,000 entries that all say Missy, so I don't know how they're going to pick a winner. <laughs> <laughs> because I think they were hoping it would be something really weird and obscure, and it just isn't. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> I really wish I'd said the piano, because I'd be right. <laughs> would be. There's a piano in there. Oh. 
<laughs> what did you think of the inside of the vault? I've been quite keen to see inside. It was fairly sparse, fairly spartan. And large. Very large. We've seen the outside of the vault in, uh, in Extremis, haven't we? So yes. we know it's not that big. So it's TARDIS like, but then it's not Time Lord technology, is it? Because it, it belongs to the executioners, supposedly. So. Yes. Yeah. Now, something that comes to mind here, it's not in my notes, but it's something I was talking about on Twitter. I, I noticed in this episode the Doctor was wearing the shabby old coat. That yeah, he, that he wore at the start of Extremis, albeit without the waistcoat and with his shirt untucked in Extremis. That is sure. And I've been saying to people, "Is that going to be something?" That's the clothes he goes to execute Missy in, and here it's already happened because she's in. It's the already vault. happened, yeah. So how is this all going to come together? But nothing, nothing happened in regards to that plot. So I don't know whether that's going to become a thing or whether he's just wearing the same clothes. And <laughs> I think it's the clothes that the Doctor wears when he's being bad, right? <laughs> because he's 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 supposedly working with the monks here, and he was going to execute Missy there. So they're the clothes he's putting on when he's going to do a bad thing. I so see. whenever you see him in those clothes in a future episode, you know, he's he's going to do something bad. Something's going to that, go down. That's, that's my theory. There is bad clothes. <laughs> <laughs> well, keeping with Missy though, I I liked how sensible she was in this episode. On the whole, I mean, she wasn't in this episode to a to any big degree, which actually surprised me. I thought she would have been a star of these three episodes. And, you know, she wasn't even in the previous one. And here, mm, more of a cameo. She's kind of a Hannibal Lecter here, isn't she? They sort of go in and ask her for, you know, well, how would you sort of solve this problem? Which is what they do in Silence of the Lambs with Lecter. So did, did you get that sense? Yeah, it's totally a Clar- Clarice thing, isn't it? Yeah. She, she's there just to be the, the uh, Hannibal Lecter, I think. You're absolutely right on that. But that said, I think she steals every scene she's in. Yes. I mean, she's just lapping it up. It's such a stellar performance. Yeah, and you know what? I, I like this sort of unsure. This is almost a, a version of Am I a Good Woman? Yeah. You know, and maybe they should have done this from the start, although it would have clashed with Capaldi in that first series, I guess, when mm. he was asking him, Am I a Good Man? But instead we got the, wee, look at me, I'm a crazy Mary Poppins, you know, for a few series. And I, I don't know, I think I would have liked this Missy a, a little bit more. It's really intriguing that she seems to be detoxing in a way. Mm. It's almost like she's coming off like a drug addiction by being locked up in there. You know, the doctor's talking about the stages that she's going to go through in terms of redeeming herself. And she's going, she's so unprepared for it. And it, it, it's, yeah, it just feels like, she, you know, she almost like a heroin addict, you know, who's been yeah. like sort of put it put in a cell to, to, to come off the high, you know? Yeah. Quite intriguing. It's, it feels a little bit like the Sherlock stuff that Moffat's done in that respect. Well, he does like to go back to the well. <laughs> yeah, he does indeed. <laughs> intriguing, intriguing too. I don't know if you picked up on this, Rob. She indicates very clearly that she's in the vault by choice, which mm. is an interesting thing. Because in previous episodes, we've already got the sense that she wants you trying to get out, the banging on the door and everything. Or is that just bravado? Just a bit of the old bravado. Like, I could get out of this if I wanted to. I, I took it to mean, um, going back to what I was saying, that that she's going through the stages of withdrawal. Mm. Okay. That she, that, that's all she's become more accepting of it. Whereas before she was like, let me out, let me out. Now she's more like, oh, okay, right, now I'm going to go through with this. As you would if you were coming off some sort of high, maybe. I don't yeah. know. Now, before last week's episode, I was thinking, oh, Missy will be in this episode, and she wasn't in it at all. And in this episode, as I've said, she she was barely in it. Is the storyline I think is still coming, where Missy teams up with the Doctor because she's good now, going to be Missy versus the Sim Master in that final two-parter? Surely she's not going to just turn evil again in that two-parter, you know? And if he's back, surely they're not both good. 
I'm thinking there's going to be Master V Master in that last episode. Good Master versus Evil Master, do you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think it has to be. Otherwise, this whole thing doesn't feel in. No, exactly, exactly. And and a further question is, does that overegg the pudding? If you've got Master V Master, the Cybermen, the original Cybermen, and the Doctor about to regenerate, that seems like a very <laughs> packed two-parter. And a pony. And a pony. Oh, yes, if she gets her pony, of course. Well, they promised her the pony. Can't go back on that. They did. They did. Bill promised it. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> She's getting the pony and some new books, Toys in a Particle Accelerator and 3D Printer. All of those. <laughs> <laughs> there were some good lines there, that's for sure. Oh, I just, every, everything that Missy was in, it was kind of like, yeah, I just love him. There's more of this, more of this. Mm. I was disappointed whenever they went away from her, to be honest. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, again, I'll just put it here. I was surprised at how sparingly she was used and her, her big adventure must be yet to come in that final two-parter. Oh, agreed. And I, I think I think if I understand correctly, she's in three episodes more before the end of the series. Oh. I think she's in the Rona Munro one as well, if I remember rightly. Oh, that would be very cool. Yeah. Ah, I could I, be wrong. I could be wrong. Future episodes may prove me wrong. That gives me some more thoughts now. Maybe she's good in that one, then turns evil. And it's the Sim Master who comes back as a good guy well, in the I, final episode. If you, if you want to ask my theory, I think possibly where they're going with this is that the Doctor will take her out on a test run. Is mm. that having having got to the point where he believes that she's confronted her evil and is making a real effort to be good, he'll let her accompany him on the TARDIS so they'll have some adventures together before the end of the series. I think that's probably where they're going with it. That's just my theory. Yes, there, there certainly seems to be stages. Because uh, when we first saw her, she was in that completely enclosed area. And then at the end of the episode, she was outside of it, you know. Um, and I guess maybe he lets her out from time to time so they can sit out there and maybe eat, sit on the lounge and so on. I guess the next step beyond that is to is to physically take her outside again. Yeah. Yeah. They're building up to that, I think. It's, it's, it's got to be. I, mean, I think what we're looking there is because we've discussed this before. What is the season arc? I think probably we're seeing that now. I, I think I think this episode. I think if, if this if this episode does one thing well, it tells us what what, what the what the arc is. Yeah, that's that's my feeling. Yeah, no, well spotted. Anything else on Missy before we move on? Ooh, other than just liking her performance <laughs> a lot. <Yeah. laughs> I think a lot of people have liked her performance, even people who don't like Missy per se. This more toned down character, I think, has resonated even with Missy. I don't want to use the word haters, but people who don't like her so much. I, I think I think that a toned down version of Missy is it's got more texture. Mm. She's not just over the top the whole time. She's kind of dialed it down, and we're still seeing the same performance. It's the same character. We still believe that it's still her, but she's just giving it more more texture. Yeah, and and it benefits from it absolutely. Definitely, I love it. All right, uh, we've briefly mentioned Bill, so let's talk about her a bit more. What what can we say? This episode basically revolved around her, and it's funny because other podcasts that I listen to, other websites I read, have been in love with Bill, adoring Bill um, as a character, but have hit a real sticking point with these episodes in terms of the story. Yet it's the story in these episodes where I think Bill's really come into her own and matured and actually been better than in the early episodes that people have loved. That's a very convoluted way of saying... <laughs> I think she was great here. I think she's come into her own. I was really blown away by her, even if this run of three stories perhaps is the most divisive of the uh, the series so far with people. I'm going to disagree with you there, Rob, I'm afraid. Okay. Yeah, I I made the note here. I feel that, that while, well, you know, 
Missy may be evolving, that, that Bill is devolving. I feel that her earlier, earlier episodes were stronger. They portrayed her character better, and I, I'm, I, I'd, I've been steadily more irritated as a viewer by her in, the, in these last few episodes. Not, not I hasten to add the necessarily Pearl Mackey's performance. I think she's given a really strong performance, but I just feel the character isn't being well served by the scripts. And I just feel that she's making, she's jumping to some some decisions and, and and making some judgment calls. I don't feel the bit where she shoots the doctor to be particularly well earned, for instance. Mm-hmm. I, I, and and that's the writing. That's not the acting for me. I, I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not loving Bill as much as I used to be. I have to say. Is that right? Okay. In yeah. that in that scene, I I think she was very let down by the doctor. She kept giving him all these chances to sort of say yes, yes, it's you know I'm I'm acting here, and when mm. and when she realizes that he's not or thinks that he's not, I kind of bought why she might shoot him. Sure, like I say, it's a personal reaction to it, but um, I'm not buying it personally. Okay, what about the fact she was prepared to to die or at least become brain dead? to save everybody given that this is really her mistake in the first place she's enslaved the earth to the monks just to give the doctor his sight back in the previous episode so mm. it's, it's on her so she was prepared to sacrifice herself yeah it's still <laughs> i don't know I just somehow there's something that doesn't ring quite true to me i mean the, the fact she'd go to all the effort of tying the doctor up as well it's kind of like yeah it's uh, i can't even really put it into words but it doesn't feel quite right to her character as we've seen in previously she's so sometimes she's really been quite, quite. Um, she, sometimes she's really almost like sort of ag- aggressive in the sense of like either shooting the doctor or, or tying him up so he can't intervene. And other times she's very much more vulnerable, and and, and the, she seems to vacillate between these two extremes according to what the script requires of her. Right. And it just doesn't feel like a, a, a true through path through the episode for me. Okay, that that's fair. I can see she is certainly different in these episodes to earlier episodes. I've taken it to be more of a a maturing, a confidence, a uh, a falling, not in love, but gaining a sort of a, a love for the Doctor, like the way she kissed him, for example, in this episode. I've I've sort of taken it that way in my in my head, but I can see why it would be jarring in general. I, I guess what I would have probably liked to have seen to make those moments I've talked about feel more earned would to see her going through more hardship and and struggle in those those early scenes where they're covering the six months. Mm. It just feels like she's wandering around the streets and observing things and she's not really feeling the true impact of what's going on. And if we'd just seen a bit more of what what was happening to her, that maybe she we felt her desperation and 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 her sort of her willingness to go to extremes could have been better um, telegraphed maybe. Mm. Uh, fair enough. And just on that scene with the doctor tied up, she had him tied up and I kept thinking to myself, you've known Harry Houdini, you've trained with the best. Why aren't you getting out of these bonds? And, oh, Re- Revenge of the Sidemen referenced it. Well, yes. And, <laughs> you know, thankfully at the end he did free himself and I thought, oh, thank yeah. goodness. If he had stayed tied up, I would have been throwing things at the television. Did, did you feel like that? To me, that was um, that was um, Science in the Library all over again, though, wasn't it? Yes. It's, it's River tying the doctor up and he comes to and he's kind of like he's struggling to free himself to save his friend from from wiping herself out by connecting her up to a mind probe thing. It's kind of like, come on, you've done this before. It's back to the well, like you said. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we move on? Absolutely. All right. Nardole. I don't have much on him here because he was a bit in the background to me. I mean, he was in a lot of scenes, but he didn't have a lot to do. One thing he did get to do, I think, though, is act. I think he's been allowed to act lately and not just be, you know, the one-liner comic relief guy. Sure. 
I mentioned last week, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of Nardo, or Nardi, as we should be calling him now. Oh, yes. <laughs> I like his performance. I, I, I know other people don't necessarily um, have that much time for him, but I think I think he's, he's doing a good job. And, yeah, he's great in this episode. I, I love the bit about the uh, where he's got the neck pinch you can only do one hand. Yes. <laughs> Which I was thinking of in terms of, because I thought of Mr. Spock on Star Trek doing that sort yeah. of nerve pinch. And then I thought, of how I can do the, the Vulcan symbol with my, hang on, I'll just check, with my left hand, but I can't do the Vulcan symbol with my right. Ooh. And I know the Vulcan symbol is not a neck pinch. I can do it with both. So you can do it with both. <laughs> I can yeah. do it so well with my left, but not with my right. So I was I was empathising. I was thinking, yeah, I can't do the Vulcan symbol with one of my hands. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing is real. Anyway, I digress. Hey, we were, we, we were talking to, while we were on Nardole, we were talking about um, last week about what is he? And whether that's an ongoing thing, because obviously he's talking about it's not his original left hand and he won it in the game. So we've got a little bit more going on there about him being that Frankenstein monster like we were discussing. Yeah, I don't know if this is going to pay off at all or whether they're just like silly little lines to make us think each week. I think you could be right, Rob. Yeah, yeah, which is a shame. But but the more that gets layered on this, it's not my face. I've got cheap lungs. (laughs) I won my hand. You know, because I'm thinking, well, if you're weak in your hand, you must have been conscious. It's not been given to you by the doctor. So did you have another hand and then you won a hand? Then you took your own hand off and reattached the new hand. (laughs) How does that work? And I think about those things way too much when people do throwaway lines. That's for sure. Me too. Me too. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The monks. Let's talk about the monks. Because, you know what? For such a powerful adversary, they could magically give the doctor his sight back in the last episode. They could make analog watches move all over the world. They seemed very dumb in this episode. I mean, to go back to the Doctor crashing his ship, were they looking for him? They don't seem to be. What about the one that was on that ship? Did they have to kill him? We don't see that happen. They come face to face with Bill, and they can't tell that she's treasonous, but they can with plenty of other people, it seems. They're just pulling them off the street, you know. Mm. Um, So why couldn't they do that? And just on Bill... If she is such a linchpin to their whole plan, why aren't they protecting her a bit more? That seemed a bit strange to me. And why doesn't the monk who's, like you say, on the ship, count, when he come, the monk comes face to face with her, why is there not a sort of a... You seem to get a little flicker of recognition, but why doesn't the monk act on that? It's sort of like, well, if she is on the ship and she is a linchpin for the whole plan, then why, does, why doesn't the monk do anything? Yeah, because surely he would know, because as we learned, there aren't that many monks to go around, so they must yeah. all be in on the on the joke. So just be, you know, <laughs> you'd, he'd be thinking, oh, this is this one, this is the important one, and he can't read her mind or whatever they do to know that people are, you know, treasonous. It, mm. just, uh, it just seemed a bit weird, that bit. Did you feel like they were the silence all over again? Yeah. I mean, because the, the silence were doing that, they were inserting themselves into history, you know, they were on the moon landing and everything. Yeah. As you said before, it's revisiting the well, isn't it? I was about to say that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, unfortunately, yes. Yeah. And did they get any dialogue in this episode? By the end, I was trying to remember if they had said anything, but I couldn't be sure if they had. And I thought, what a strange enemy. They're, they're quite visual more than anything else. On my notes, I had that we never really get to know the monks, who they are or what they want. Most of what we know about them comes secondhand from the Doctor or Bill discussing them. They have no mouthpiece as such. Mm. in this episode yeah and particularly the monk in the pyramid is a sort of static passive creature i kept waiting for it to come to a life and attack them and it never never really responded 
No, it's very strange. And and as I say, there, there may have been a monk talking in this episode. I didn't pick up on it. They certainly aren't talking and explaining themselves or doing much at all. Mm. And surely this puts to bed the idea that they're the Mondasian Cybermen. Surely? Well, unless the monks are coming back later in the series, but I didn't get that vibe from it. I didn't feel like they were setting up a later return. No, no. On on the whole, I feel they they look really interesting. They seemed really cool. They had this great idea at first, and in extremis, you know that that whole simulation of the Earth. Wow, look at these guys! But they became a bit of a damp squib in the end for me. Yeah, unfortunately, because they look really great. I agree. Yeah, I was just it was a disappointment. Disappointment. They started off strong, and and they just got weaker. I felt with each episode. Yeah, they're they're a bit like the Weeping Angels in that respect. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but we won't go down that rabbit hole. I thought that it was um, kind of an, a, a, a nice nod, sly nod to BBC budget limitation when they were talking about the myth that the monks are here in greater numbers, and there really are very few of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Moving on to just some general plot points I've made notes of here. Everyone's in boiler suits, Paul, like it's George Orwell's 1984. You know, that looks good, but what does it what does it mean? Do people no longer have office jobs? Do they all work in, you know, 1930s power plants or something? You know, why is everyone in boiler suits? <laughs> the visual, don't get me wrong, the visual is great and it's depressing and oh, we're in boiler suits. Oh, life is hard and horrible. But what what what's the actual reality behind that? Are they going to offices and working in their boiler suits in the office? Or yeah, the the, the kid had the same coloured suit as the parents, and it's kind of like, but they had green suits, and yet when you were went out on the street, all the people out on the street all had black suits. Yeah, it's like so they were were they colour coded? Were the people inside wearing green and the people outside wearing black? Did they have to change their clothes when they went outside? <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> These are the things we obviously care about and worry about. It just seemed weird to me. I got, I got the visual. It made it look very, you know, again, Orwellian and, oh, look, you know, life has changed. Okay, I get that. But the practicalities of it, I thought, I couldn't figure out at all. What is it about dystopian science fiction that everyone ends up wearing the same style of clothes? Yes, exactly right. <laughs> surely, surely if you've got dystopia and, and society's not running how it should be, that people would not be paying that much attention to their fashion. <laughs> I'm at a loss. I'm at a loss. Shall we move on from that? I think we should. All right. I want to talk prison hulks. Now, these were big in the 18th and 19th centuries to cover booming prison populations, I guess. We hear about them a lot in Australian history because a lot of the reason the convicts were sent here from the UK was to get the numbers down and, you know, thin out the prison hulks that were on the Thames and all of this, you know, these these majestic old ships that had been demastered and just sitting out there housing people. Sure. I, I didn't think they existed after that, so I actually went and did some research after watching this episode quite briefly, and I found that the UK established a new prison ship called HMP Ware, as a temporary measure to ease prison overcrowding. Now, it was closed down in 2006, so it's not been around for 11 years or more, but there has actually been a modern prison hulk. I was ready to go to town, the historian in me was ready to say, prison hulks are from the 18th and 19th centuries only, but no, there actually has been a modern prison hulk. So I thought it was interesting that it, it was set, at least part of this episode was set on an old prison hulk. That, that really has not been something that the news media has covered, is it? It's no. Really covered up. Yeah. <laughs> I should say this uh, this prison hulk, this new one, wasn't tooling around up and down the uh, the UK coastline. It was actually docked in uh, Dorset at the Royal Naval Dockyard. So right. a little different to what we saw today. 
I know I would assume these hulks would be decommissioned in the sense that you couldn't just fire them up and start driving them around around the ocean, right? Well, as a security measure, presumably, so the the, the convicts couldn't do a con air and you know take off. <laughs> But I mean, you know, these are these are ships that are no longer necessarily in active service uh, and, and therefore have been re- repurposed. So uh, the fact that the doctor can start it up and, and drive it, <laughs> drive it to shore is, it, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this this HMP Ware, I think they had bought from the US. It, it had served its time. It was an old ship. So yeah, I don't think it would be tooling around too much. But no. Anyway, just a small note, just a historical note, just the kind of weird thing I look, like to look up. You taught me something about jackets last week, and this week it was about halts. <laughs> I've got nothing on fashion this week. Oh, no. Oh, oh disappointed. Oh, but you did talk about the bonus suit, so we'll give you that. There you go. That, that was that was fashion for this week. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I've got a couple more points here about the plot, but did you have any general ones you want to throw in so it's not just me talking and rabbiting on? It's very topical, isn't it? Because they're, mm-hmm. ta- they're at fake New Central, as they call it. Yes. I mean, that's really, really right up to the minute. And this episode must have been written best part of a year ago and when fake news was just coming into the media currency and we were being recorded a few months ago. So it still feels very fresh in that respect. We're, we're, we're right in the thick of fake news, both in, in the UK and the US, um, in terms of what the media is reporting versus what's actually true. So this idea that the monks are putting around this, this whole sort of fake reality just just has a strong resonance, I think. I, I think that that's a really strong part of the episode for me. Yeah. Did you catch Trump on one of those panels? Um, I didn't, know. He appeared on one of those panels. So Trump is canon in the Doctor Who universe. <laughs> After what we were talking about Trump last week. <laughs> that's right. He's not canon in the uh, the simulation, but he is canon in the real Doctor Who universe. Yeah. Orange president, yeah. This point I've already really touched on that I, I quite like the monk's mind control of the planet, but for a big adversary who's you know painted to be all that in a bag of chips, when they're finally defeated, it's always a bit of a you know could they not see that coming or could they not have guarded against that sort of situation? So I felt a bit let down in in that aspect of the plot, just that they turned out to be just a, a damp squib as I mentioned earlier. Yeah, I think that's the problem if you have a monster like the monks who are all that all-powerful, is very, very hard to come up with a convincing way of defeating them. Uh, that really takes a really... The, the, the stronger your villain, the stronger the piece of writing needs to be to, to find, a, find a weakness and, and defeat them. And, and, and it doesn't quite, like you say, it doesn't quite ring true. Mm. All right. Final note on the plot here, for me at least. Uh, Bill's love for her mum. It's normally something I would gag a little about. You know, I think of something like Victory of the Daleks where Bracewell is convinced not to blow up because he loved a girl and all this sort of nonsense. And and I thought it might have been going in that direction. But here I think there was a bit of a twist and that she was remembering a, a fictional mother. I mean, the photos of her mother are real. The Doctor went and took those. Mm. But this idea that she's built up this fictional mother who she has conversations with that we kicked off the episode with really pays off at the end and that bamboozles the monks because they can't quite get a handle on this character because she never really quite existed in that way it's fighting fire with fire basically Mm. because it's combating a false memory the false memory being that the monks have always been here with another false memory which is bill talking to her mum which he's never actually done in reality so yeah that that kind of feels true that you're using you're using their their strength against them Yes, no, I, I agree. And and, and it, it gives some validity to that scene that certainly I, I, I felt was a bit odd in the, in the pilot where the doctor goes and gets all those photographs of Bill. It kind of gives that, that scene a bit more validity. 
because it just felt like a sort of an unnecessary moment in, in, in that episode for me. Yeah, no, no, it came together quite well. Again, I didn't like the line, oh, I was just taking pictures of your mum and now I've saved the world with them, you know, that that arrogant sort of spin on it. But To, to me, it was one of those necessary lines if the viewers haven't been paying attention, here's a little reminder what those photos were. Yeah, true. It's it's there. The line's not necessarily there for the doctor, although I totally, totally agree with you that it comes across as him being arrogant. But the line, I think, is there to serve a, as a reminder to the, the casual viewer that, hey, remember that episode? Mm, exactly. All right. Any other points on the episode before we explain our words of the week and give a score, Paul? I wanted to have a grumble about the guards, Walkmans. Okay, go for it. Why does the lead guard, I think his name's Alan, have a tape cassette Walkman? <laughs> yes. Well, I, I assume they all had them. Where would you even find one of those these days? Exactly. Exactly. If you were just going to grab, a, a, you know, headphones, sure, no problem. Everyone's got headphones. But you'd plug it into an iPod or, or your cell phone. No one has a tape cassette Walkman anymore, surely. No, in, in fact, they're quite valuable. Um, because, yeah. because of Guardians of the Galaxy, I believe the original Walkman or one of the original models, uh, they're very expensive now on eBay because everyone wants one, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, that was weird. Yeah, that was weird. I, I, mean, I get where they're coming from. They wanted something that had a visual damage to it. And, and so the, the tape spooling out was visually more, more uh, telegraphed the idea that it was damaged more than, say, a, a, a hole in an iPod might do. Yes, but uh, but yeah, it, it's just still, it took me out of it in the sense that I, I was thinking, has he got a tape cassette Walkman? <laughs> maybe given those original Walkmans were quite heavy and 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 made of metal, um, maybe they're trying to show that it would stop a bullet, um, whereas a modern modern sort of phone might not. I kind of felt like if 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 they were all there, and it, I, this is my my sort of um, ambitious scripted head on here, that if you had that scene and you really really wanted to have a tape cassette Walkman. You could have one of the guards there saying, oh, damn, I've got nothing to play. And the doctor whipping out his tape set. Well, here's one I found in the TARDIS, you know, yeah. here's one I found in there, you know. And they go, oh, my God, that's antiquated. Does it still work? Have a little bit of a conversation about it. Then he clips it on and away they go. Mm. Just so that it sells the idea that he's using such an antiquated piece of technology. Yeah, otherwise it was weird. And you know what? There's probably going to be kids in the audience thinking, what's all that stuff spooling out of that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> not realising that's what tapes used to do when they unspooled. Well, if we're taken out of it, you know, like you say, what are one of the millennials going to react to? They're going to go, what the hell is that alien technology on his waist? <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Word of the week. I'm not sure who went first last time or whether it even matters. Um, would, you like, would you like me to? Please. My word was buttons. Mm -hmm. Or button, if you like. And by that... I mean the reset button. Yeah. And this this is a gripe I have, and it's a, it's a reason that I don't particularly like Star Trek, because Star Trek, more often than not, and I think particularly here, like Next Generation and Voyager, will have something really, really quite serious and, and life-threatening with long-term devastating consequences happen to the central characters, and by the end of the episode, no one can remember it happening. It's basically been removed from history, everyone's back to normal. It's as if it never happened. And as a viewer, you feel cheated because you've invested all this time and, and, and emotional engagement with all the things that have happened to them. Um, you know, it just doesn't feel rewarding. To, and this is me personally as a viewer, I just... Mm. And to see that final um, bit where, where the Doctor and, and Bill are basically discussing how the whole thing's been removed from history, it's kind of like, yeah, well, I felt 
the next time I watch it as a viewer, that episode, and in fact that whole three-parter, I'm going to feel none of this really matters. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There's no, the consequences is, is removed. Yeah, like when everyone became the master, but then magically it was magicked out of their brains that they were ever the master in that uh, sure. final Tenet episode. Don't get me wrong, I'm not criticising this as the only time this has happened in Doctor Who. No. Not, not by a long shot, but it is something that bugs me. Yeah, they want they want to have their cake and eat it too, I guess. Um, sure. By telling these big stories and then you know they can't let people remember it because that would just be weird if we all remembered <laughs> that this went on as as members of the human race. <laughs> I, I get you, I get you. Uh, my word was petition. That's P A R T, not petition. I know I can sometimes speak imprecisely. Partition because I think this will divide fans. I think some people will really love this episode and some people will really, really hate this episode. In fact, I'm already starting to see that happening even here on, you know, day one of it going out. So uh, partition for me. Do you think that's a reaction to what, what like I was discussing, it's whether you buy into this idea that, that, that if, you, if, you, if you, you say, okay, that reset doesn't matter, then you love the episode. If the reset really bugs you, then you hate the episode. You think that's the that's where your partition comes into play. I think that would be a big part of it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, the the bigger they reach, the further they reach with these episodes, they've got to pull it back at some point and do something. Mm. And it's usually just a reset button, <laughs> as, as we're saying, and it's unsatisfying. It really is. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, uh, for a score. Um, it sounds like I'm being very harsh on this episode. I am going to toss a 7 out of 10 at it. I still think there are quite good moments in it. I was still entertained by a lot of it, you know, despite all the things we've been saying. So I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with a 7 out of 10. Sure. I liked it, but I didn't love it, I have to say. And, and it, it pains me because I'm only on to every, your episodes, so I don't want listeners to come away from this going oh Paul's very negative about Doctor Who because I'm not I absolutely love Doctor Who but I do feel that by random chance these two episodes haven't been the strongest of this, this series yes please please look up listeners the other episode of the show Paul has hosted uh, gosh when was that the start of the year you did a monthly show with us and you're very effusive about Doctor Who all the way through so love it lifelong fan of Doctor Who that's right I, I am going to give this one a, a six a six I think that's yeah. fair you know, I, I feel slightly generous with seven, but um, who knows how I feel at the end when I'm sort of rejigging all my scores. Sure. Shall we go to the sports desk? Let's do it. All right. Here we are at the Sports Desk, where every week we talk MVP, Player of the Week, and Foul of the Week. Paul, I'm going to go first with MVP. You're going to disagree. I already know this, because <laughs> we've already discussed it. I'm going with Pearl Mackey. I thought she acted superbly in this episode. I thought she got some great lines. She really sold it, and I bought it. Rob, I mean, I like I said, I don't have any to have a problem with Pearl Mackey. My, my problem is the way that Bill's been written but it does affect her performance because she's still got to deliver those lines. So I'm not, I wouldn't criticize Pearl, but I would criticize Bill. But for me, um, MVP for me this week is Missy. Mm, Absolutely. As, as I've already mentioned for all the reasons I've already mentioned, she just, yeah, she does it for me. I could have seen a lot more. I'm quite happy of her in this episode. Yeah, I, I agree. I would have liked to have seen more of her in this, in this three-parter, maybe, you know, something in that middle story, maybe, I don't know. And have we broken the trend by not one of us not mentioning Capaldi as the MVP? Oh, no. 
Oh no, I might have to go <laughs> back and edit this. I know. I think I did feel he sort of let his side down with his, with his manacle bit. That sort of just, I thought, yeah, you're not quite as good this week as you have been. <laughs> yeah, very true. On to play of the week, I'm going to say it was taking on that senior monk um, who was holding onto those controls or whatever he was doing. He looked creepy as hell. He looked ten times creepier than the other monks. You know, and first the Doctor took him on, then Bill. I like the way the footage was changing on the, the screens around them. The monks would appear and then disappear from famous images from history, like with Churchill and whatnot. I thought, this is great. I'm, I'm really digging this scene. This is cool. Yeah. For me, it's I'm going for a really quiet, slightly schmaltzy scene, just for something different. Mm-hmm. It, just, it just sort of touched me at the end of the episode. When Bill says... Why do you put up with this then? And the doctor says, in amongst 7 billion, there's someone like you. That's how I put up with the rest of them. It's, it, you know, yeah. it's, it's a small inconsequential scene. And, and it's a lovely line. And just the performance there, the doctor smiles at her and we get some radiant smile from Bill and the camera pulls back. And I thought, yeah, that, that's just a perfect moment. Yeah, that was nice, actually. I, I like that too. Foul of the week. Uh, for me, take your pick. The Doctor crashing that ship and laughing like a loon. Uh, the apparent stupidity and bad planning of the monks after they'd been shown to be so meticulous as to run a world simulation <laughs> a couple of weeks earlier. Solving the plot with love as the big reset switch. The underuse of Missy. Well, I think if I had to pick out of all of those things, it's probably the underuse of Missy. I, I think letting her out and having her team up with Bill and maybe Nardole to fight against the Doctor in this episode would have been quite interesting. I think this this plot could have gone in a slightly different direction and been quite fun in that respect. So the underuse of Missy is my foul of the week. I would agree with you if we don't see more of Missy ongoing. I kind of feel like there's a build happening here that we're, we're going to see more of her as we go on. I hope we're going to see more of her in, in, in forthcoming episodes, and this is just ramping it up. So, so I'm I don't necessarily go there's a foul as long, as long as we see more of her. If we don't, then it is definitely a missed opportunity. Yeah, it certainly whet my appetite to see more of her. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, for me though, the boat ramming scene, like you mentioned, yeah, Capaldi's performance with that, yeah, just <laughs> the, the 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 plot hole as we mentioned with with him suddenly, you know bringing himself to the attention of the monks after being so covert for six months. And then he just is over, overplaying that. That was just, yeah, it just didn't feel right. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on to listener messages? Sure. Okay. The first of these is from David Kitchen. Who's that? Um, no, <laughs> we can't keep him away. Even when he's touring overseas, our, our regular co-host Dave has written in and he's written in uh, twice. This is about lie of the land. Today's episode. He says, Okay, here's my very hot take after watching Live Land on BBC America in New Haven. Dave, you name dropper. My word of the week is duality, because there are two very different ways to assess this episode. As an exciting adventure that galloped along, it was very successful. However, scratch the surface, and there are so many questions left unanswered, and so many things that seem to happen just because they'd make for an exciting moment, rather than for cogent reasons. I'm sure you chaps will explore some of those questions, and we certainly have. A bit of a letdown to finally open the vault, only to find Basil Exposition is in there, though yes, I'm sure we'll see more of this thread, and I enjoy the more toned-down Missy more than I have in the past, but I did think she was wasted. But yes, really conflicted on how to judge this one. Good luck with the review from Dave. So the one I've got here is from EasyPM the Nerdiest, which is an email sent to us. It goes, hi guys, you know the Stephen Moffat trope of how the power of love saves the day in lots of episodes? Look at you, Wedding of River Song, The Empty Child, The Doctor and the Widow in the Wardrobe. Well, in The Pyramid at the End of the World, the power of love ending is what dooms the human race. 
Do you think this was a good idea for Stephen Moffat to include? Well, I guess it was building up to the power of love saving saving us in this episode that we've just seen. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. But like you say, it's something that keeps getting revisited over and over again. Yeah, it certainly does. Jeff Waddle, uh, via our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash the DW show, he says, good but safe idea. This is now talking about Pyramid at the end of the world, I should say. I couldn't fault how it looked, but little tension in the three leaders agreeing for the whole world, and I don't like this Mr. President thing. Never have. Well, neither do we, Jeff, that's for sure. Yeah, we had a good discussion about this, didn't we? Absolutely. He continues, Inside the pyramid was good, though. It reminded me of the Keys of Marinus, and I half expected a monk to be in the background tripping over his own feet. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, Jeff. Uh, A bit convenient for the monks to be able to give the Doctor his sight back, just like that, which would seriously make them one of the most powerful villains of them all. But the whole way they work in having to be asked leads me to believe they are a computer program of some kind, and more of this is a simulation than we think, and a big reset button ahead. Well, you certainly got the big reset button right, but no, they, they weren't a computer program this time. We, we were discussing that last week, weren't we? We thought that this episode might have been a continuation of the simulation. True, although I think that would have driven some fans crazy, you know, it might have been a bridge too far. But we were, we were questioning ourselves in terms of the plot holes that we were we were identifying and saying, well, hold on, maybe next week's going to resolve it in terms of it's all going to be a, a, a big simulation. But as it turns out, no, it wasn't. So moving on, um, Rob Kelly, at Rob Kelly, tweets, all one word. And Rob writes, after 54 years on television, it surprises me how original Doctor Who can be. Not the best story of the series, but it was engaging. Quite right. I'd agree with that. Indeed. Talking about Pyramid at the End of the World, that's for sure. And I just want to say Rob has been very kind in uh, retweeting some of our material and getting our name out there on on Twitter, and that's been great. Thank you for that too, Rob. Thank you, Rob. All right, moving on. David Clark, who wrote to us last week about his TARDIS prop, and we actually got some responses to that and people quite interested in his TARDIS prop, as you can imagine. Loves Uh, the TARDIS prop. Oh, yes. Dave says, I have an idea knocking around in my head. It may be not a 5,000-year-old pyramid, it's just the Masters, John Sims' chameleon circuit, working on his TARDIS, and he's behind it all. Cheers from Dave. So, uh, well, that wasn't the case. I don't know whether you'll be uh, excited about what happened today, Dave, or, or disappointed that it wasn't John Clark's TARDIS, or John Sims' TARDIS, I should say. But, uh, yeah, there we go. Yeah. I've got um, one here from Martin Oates. Beer is the answer. And he goes, hello there, guys. This episode on first viewing had me feeling rather short-changed, but that could have been due to Dave the Bulldog. Hello, Dave, Dave the Bulldog. Wanting to, play, <laughs> wanting to play while I was watching. My partner's dog wants all the attention. On closer inspection, the second time around, it impressed me more, although not as much as part one. A few annoying moments, namely that the soon-to-be-dead scientists kept leaving doors open, and as soon as the soldiers didn't agree with the president, they ignored him. He's put president in speech marks there, mm. as he should. <laughs> yes. Makes all that whole but of the storyline a bit pointless, really. Also, where on earth literally was unit? It's a unit story minus unit. Huh? You did that bug you, Rob? It did, actually. I, I thought about that before we recorded the episode. I don't think I got the comment into the episode we did on it. But, yeah, this was absolutely Unit's business to be involved in, and they weren't there. Yeah, it kind of like it is the world leaders, so maybe they just felt they had enough cast there and putting the Unit in would have extraneous characters. I did wonder if Unit were in an earlier draft. Yes, Moving on. true. So Martin continues... Having said all that, the way the strands all pulled together while running concurrently was excellent. Very well paced. Again, Bill shone in this episode. She has companion material for sure. 
I'm hoping that episode really delivers, especially as we now know Missy is in it. Keep up the good work, guys. Well, thank you, Martin. And uh, it'd be interesting to hear what you thought of the conclusion here. And I agree. I think Extremis was the best of the, the three episodes myself. I would agree with that, Rob. All right. Briefly, um, we have a second email from this guy called David Kitchen. I'm trying to place who, him. Who is he? Yeah, I'm trying to place him. Um, we must know him. Uh, this is, of course, talking about Pyramid at the End of the World. He wrote to us after the episode last week, but didn't have time to, to reach us. Dear Rob and Paul, managed to catch Pyramid of the en- at the End of the World on BBC America, so as promised, here are a few thoughts. My word for the week would be novel, in that it was a novel concept, but it was also one I felt more like a 1960s sci-fi novel than an episode of TV sci-fi. At its heart were a couple of good ideas, but it was let down by so many faults as to not end up being believable. The survivors slash Triffid's subplot kept me engaged for a while, but it relied on the scientists and lab processors being incredibly unprofessional and stupid, and the nature of the contagion was also inconsistent. How was Erica not infected by the end? Peter Harness again shows a grasp of geopolitics that's so unrealistic that it again detracts from this episode. And I think he's referring probably back to the Zygon episodes there from uh, previous seasons. Mm. My MVP was Pearl Mackey for almost convincing me that Bill would sacrifice the whole planet for the Doctor. Play of the day goes to the monks for totally outplaying everyone else. And sadly, I have to give foul of the week to the Doctor. Despite the advanced warning, he's still outplayed by the monks and makes a lot of annoyingly arrogant speeches whilst doing it. All that said, next week's dystopian fantasy has me keen. From Dave. This guy, Dave, makes some good points. Maybe you ought to have him on your podcast. I, I think I'll have to get him in. Yeah, I think you should. Yeah, yeah. There's some good stuff there. <laughs> maybe he could. Maybe he could replace me. I don't know. Are you going somewhere, Paul? I could be shop business, maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and just repeating, that's Retro Space Sci-Fi Collectibles in downtown Takapuna. Thank you, Rob, for that plug. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, briefly moving into Arc Watch and Fan Watch. I think the Arc really Missy's been revealed at last. Um, she's still not in a big role. Surely that comes in the finale. Um, that's all I've got for the arc. Uh, do you have anything else? I'd agree with you. I know we, we've sort of talked about what's in the vault and uh, and and Nardole's what the nature of what Nardole is. But I think after this episode, I think it's pretty conclusive that um, Mrs. Redemption is is the arc. Yeah. For fan watch, I think people will be talking a lot about Bill. I know we've had some good discussion about Bill here on the podcast. I think a lot of people out there will be asking, how on earth are they going to get rid of her? Uh, both in terms of how will they do it, how will she be written out, will she be killed off, will she uh, you know, just walk off into the sunset having decided she doesn't want to be with the Doctor anymore, or will they keep her around for this next series, which no one seems to think is possible. I haven't thought is possible, but she is so good, I would like to see that myself. It did occur to me that with that regeneration scene we talked about earlier, the fact that Bill makes no comment on it whatsoever, it's not explained to Bill, there's no dialogue around it. If you were setting up Bill to be a companion who is with the Doctor when he regenerates and beyond, that you would have done something with that scene, would you not mm, think? Good good point. You would have actually had a discussion between them about what's happening there, Doctor. Oh, if that ever happens to me, you know I'm about to change into a different person seeding that idea the fact they didn't do anything with that it didn't even get a mention from bill she wasn't confused there was nothing tends to make me think that it's not a point that's going to come back up and that she's not going to be around by the time he does regenerate that's just my personal gut feel to that 
No, that's interesting. That, that that's well spotted and, and interesting. I I don't know whether they've thought, oh yeah, we've addressed regeneration and Bill earlier in the series, but that was just mentioning the word to her. It wasn't sort of suggesting, oh, when lights start, you know, playing around my fingertips, you know, it's on <laughs> like Donkey Kong. No, uh, so yeah. But, yeah, but if you weird. were if you were the showrunner and you were setting up Bill to be around when he regenerates, you would be seeding that surely. You would think so. All right, next week, uh, Empress of Mars. This is by Mark Gatiss, who, of course, has written The Unquiet Dead, The Idiot's Lantern, Victory of the Daleks, Night Terrors, Cold War, The Crimson Horror, Robot of Sherwood, and Sleep No More. And, Paul, there are some stories in there I particularly like, but there's even more that I don't like. So I'm a bit worried about next week. I'll just throw that out there right now. I like Mark Gatiss. Um, I, I think he's one of those writers who's not, who's not afraid to be inventive. Mm-hmm. He, he, he comes come out with some like really sort of experimental ideas. But it doesn't always pay off, no. and sleep, sleep No More would be a case in point where that really just fell on, fell on its ass, but I admire the ambition. Yeah. Oh, look, I agree, and, and clearly he's a major fan. He's just like us in that respect. So, you know, I, I respect where he's coming from, and I love his, his enthusiasm for the show. I just, I just get nervous sometimes. And, and actually, I've been quite optimistic about this episode up until now, thinking, oh, Victorian soldiers on Mars? This is crazy. This is great. This is like an old role-playing game I used to play called Space um, 1889 or something like that. This, right. this is amazing. Wow. Excellent. But you know what? I heard the Ice Warrior Queen's voice in that trailer, and I thought, <laughs> oh, oh, no, all bets are off. Sorry. Well, what was it you didn't like about it? Just It just seemed really cliched and exactly right. how I feared it might sound, I think. I have a couple of a couple of comments about that. There's a, there's a classic, um, well, it's a classic, it's, it's a, um, a BBC novel from the 1990s, one of the original ones called Imperial Moon, which does much the same sort of thing, only obviously on the moon, where it's Queen Victorian era um, soldiers on a, on a moon mission. So it's got that same sort of feel to it, that sort of, it's in the past, but they're on another planet. There's kind of weirdness to it. And, 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 and the other thing, too, is I get a whole vibe from watching that trailer, and it's a good vibe, okay. that it's very, it's very classic series Doctor Who. It's in, it's in caves and tunnels, and it's, it's, it's lots of ice warriors running around, and it's, it's soldiers being shot at and everything. It just feels very sort of, I don't know, Tom Bakerish or Tom Pertwee-ish type sort of uh, Doctor Who. It's got a – and that Mark Gatiss is, is unabashedly a fan of sort of 70s Doctor Who, and I just feel maybe that's his, his love letter to, to that era maybe. You're quite right, and that could be a redeeming feature because I think that's definitely there. I'm <laughs> – I'm just worried now, Paul. I'm going to spend the next seven oh. days in you know, <laughs> anxious moments, I think. We're fans. We always worry. <laughs> yeah, very true. Very true. All right. All that's left for me to do, though, is now thank you, Paul, for sitting in for these two weeks on uh, Dave's behalf. I think it's been great getting to chat with you about these episodes. It's been a pleasure. As a long-term listener of your podcast, it's been, it's been delightful to come in and fill in for Dave. Oh, excellent. And we will certainly get you back on other episodes in the future when and where we can. I would love to. Now, a bit of housekeeping for uh, people out there listening. Next week, we'll be going out on Monday instead of Sunday afternoon or Sunday night here in Australia. Uh, That's due to Dave doing some more travelling. But Dave will be back. We're just going out a day later. So if you don't see the episode pop up straight away, don't panic. We are still making it. It's just going to be a little later. So there you go. Thank you again, Paul. This has been great. Thank you, Rob. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. 
Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.